American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media. Providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about the first black identifying priest in American history, Father Augustus Tolton. Father Tolton endured a significant amount of mistreatment and abuse because of his black skin, but he brought grace and peace and strength to his flock. One important note is a clarification about how you introduced Father Tolton. He was the first black identifying priest, but he wasn't the first priest in American history with black ancestry. No, the three Healy brothers who became priests had a mixed race mother and a white father. So they were, I think, about one quarter black. They were very light skinned and identified as white. But Father Gus, as Father Augustus Tolton was called, was the son of two dark skinned black parents. So he also had dark skin. Thus, when he came back from Rome as a duly ordained priest, he was clearly the first black identifying priest in the U.S., Yeah, and that's a really intriguing point that he studied in Rome. Yeah, it is an interesting point. It's the reason, yeah, and the reason it's intriguing is because it harkens back to what we talked about with the great sculptor Mary Edmonia Lewis. She was black and was forced to leave the U.S. and move to Rome to find a place where her skin color didn't matter. We talked about her in episode 84. Everyone should listen to her story after this one. With Augustus Tolton, the problem was that no U.S. seminary would accept a black student. That's pretty tragic in itself, frankly, but thems were the times. They claimed, basically, that the church in America wasn't ready for a black priest. Fortunately, a cardinal in Rome thought otherwise, but we'll get to that detail later. First, let's talk about Augustus Tolton's early life. He was born into slavery in northeast Missouri on April 1st, 1854. His parents, Martha Jane and Peter Paul Tolton, were owned by different masters, but both masters were Catholic and made provision for their slaves to be Catholic. Their respective masters also allowed for their slaves to get married in the church and agreed that the married couple could live together as a couple while working on their respective estates. So this was the situation in which John Augustus Tolton was born in 1854. He was the second of their three children, one older brother, Charlie, and a younger sister, Anna, who was born when Gus was about six. John Augustus was baptized at St. Peter's Church near Rensselaer, Missouri, and his godmother was actually Savilla Elliott, who was the wife of his master, Samuel Elliott. He grew up working on the plantation, of course, and as the issue of slavery was coming to a head, things began to get a bit worse for them. Shortly after the Civil War broke out in 1861, Peter Paul Tolton escaped to join the Union Army. Martha Jane was left with her children and a very real possibility that they would be sold out from under her due to the deteriorating situation. So she did what she believed necessary. 
She took her three young children, two sons who were about seven and eight years old, and Anna, who was still a babe in arms, and she fled, setting off for Hannibal, Missouri, 20 miles away, for she had been told abolitionists would aid her in crossing the Mississippi. This was a move born of utter desperation because bands of enforcers were patrolling the land looking for runaway slaves, many who were caught were shot on sight. But Martha Jane knew the pain of family separation. She had been separated from her beloved family when she was a teen, and she was determined not to let that happen to her children. Traveling only at night, she made it to Hannibal, but there she encountered a band of enforcers. She thought this was it, that she and her children were doomed. But some abolitionists and Union soldiers intervened, and she got a hold of a rowboat and began to row across the huge river. But the slavery enforcers wouldn't give up, and at least a few of them fired their rifles at the fleeing boat. Fortunately, no one was hit, and Martha Jane and her three children made it to Illinois safely. Twenty miles overland later, they arrived in Quincy, Illinois, where a large community of free blacks and escaped slaves lived. And this is where Martha Jane, Charlie, Gus, and Anna made their life. Peter Paul, unfortunately, would not survive the war. His place of death and burial is not known. Martha Jane and her boys went to work in a cigar factory and got involved in their local Catholic church, St. Boniface. As the name implies, this was a German parish, and while Mass was in Latin, the sermons were in German, though Father would summarize his sermons in English for the benefit of the English-speaking black parishioners. During their first winter there, Gus's older brother Charlie, unfortunately, died of pneumonia. Martha Jane decided that Gus should get an education, so she sent him to the parish school at St. Boniface. But this did not go well. Gus was not able to read or write, though he was nine or ten. This put him way behind his classmates, and they taunted him for it. What's worse, St. Boniface had been an all-white school to this point, and many parents objected strenuously to having a black student at the school. The nun who is his teacher, Sister Chrysologus, tried to protect him from the bullying and taunting, and she kept him extra time after school to offer tutoring, but it was no good. Martha Jane and the school were unable to change the culture overnight, so Gus withdrew by mutual agreement. When Gus was forced from school, the Toltons also changed their parish, going instead to St. Lawrence. But this move proved providential because of the pastor of St. Lawrence, Father Peter McGurr. Father McGurr was a strong-willed Irishman. But is there any other sort? <laughs> he had fled the potato famine when he was 15 and was ordained in America in 1862. When Gus was 14, Father McGurr insisted that Gus come to the parish school at St. Lawrence. Gus had been going to the public school for black children in town, but he was taunted there as well because he was quite a bit darker than most of the kids, and at 14 he was an oddity for his illiteracy and lack of learning. But he was enduring it. Father McGurr knew that the school at St. Lawrence would be better for Gus, and he assured Martha Jane that there would be no trouble of the nature that Gus had endured back at St. Boniface or in the public school. And Father McGurr made sure of it. In the face of threats of withdrawal of financial support, Father McGurr railed against racism in his sermons. He preached on, Whatsoever you did to the least of these, you did to me, and other scripture verses that got the point across. Gus was welcomed, and he received a great education. Later in life, Gus wrote, As long as I was in that school, I was safe. 
everyone was kind to me. I learned the alphabet, spelling, reading, and arithmetic. He also learned to serve Mass, which of course meant memorizing all of the Latin prayers and the rubrics. He received his first communion, and then in 1870 he was confirmed. Gus so impressed Father McGurr with his piety and love for the faith that at some point they began to discuss the possibility of Gus studying for the priesthood. They both knew that both his race and his limited education would pose problems for the regular course of such events, but they thought perhaps the Franciscans would take him both because they were more open to black postulants and because they did more work to educate their brothers. But his application was denied. So Father McGurr wrote to the diocesan bishop just to see. The bishop actually replied positively, saying that the diocese would assume the expenses of training Gus if they could find a seminary that would accept him. Well, that was a non-starter because Father McGurr had already contacted every seminary in the country and they all said that they were not yet ready for a black student. So things look bleak. The next possibility was the order we know as the Josephites. They were founded in England in the 1860s to work specifically with African-descended Catholics. They came to America in 1871 and established a house and parish in Baltimore, but they had no seminary, so while they were open to Gus joining them, they couldn't educate him. So priests in Quincy, all of whom agreed that Gus deserved the chance to pursue the priesthood, took on the task of educating Gus. First was the assistant priest at St. Boniface. Next was a friend of Father McGurr's, but that didn't last long. Gus's formal tutoring lapsed for a few years until 1878, when the Franciscans who ran St. Francis College there in Quincy, today's Quincy University, accepted him as a student. The common thought was that he would get his philosophical and other remedial education there and then go to the Josephite Seminary in London before going to be a missionary priest in a place like Borneo. So to this end, Gus studied, but he also took action. With the help of one of the Franciscan leaders, Father Richard, and eventually the Sisters of Notre Dame, Gus managed to open a Catholic school for black children in Quincy called St. Joseph's School. This school proved so popular that non-Catholic leaders in the city began to agitate against it, lest more and more of the black population of Quincy become Catholic. During this time, Fathers McGurr and Richard began working another angle for getting Gus into seminary, sending him to Rome. The seminary for the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith, known as the Propaganda Fidei, trained men to be missionary priests all around the world. To get into the Propaganda Fidei's seminary, the seminarians had to solemnly promise to go wherever they were sent, not to join a religious order without Rome's permission, and to report back to the Propaganda Fidei regularly. Gus was fine with all three of those things. So, at Father McGurr's request, the local bishop applied on Gus's behalf. He was denied. However, Father Richard had another in. He knew that the Franciscan superior was a personal friend of Cardinal Giovanni Simeone, the cardinal prefect of the Propaganda Fidei. So, through that channel, they appealed. And this time, after months of waiting, Gus was accepted. He was going to Rome. On February 15, 1880, Gus left Quincy for the Eternal City. He arrived in Rome on March 12th and dove into his studies, 
and sightseeing. Now, I remember my first time in Rome, how overwhelming it was. And I'd already been in many big cities, had already seen incredibly beautiful churches, and had seen photos and videos of Rome. I was still overwhelmed by the grandeur and beauty. I cannot imagine how overwhelming an experience it had to have been for someone like Gus, who'd only known, you know, slavery and the hard scrabble life of Quincy. The other huge cultural shock for him had to have been when he realized that in Rome, no one took special notice of his black skin. There were Catholic pilgrims, priests, seminarians, religious men and women, and bishops from all over the world. Racial prejudice simply wasn't a thing there. This is what we mentioned at the beginning when we talked about Mary Edmonia Lewis. Right. And Gus may well have sat in class next to seminarians from Africa who were actually darker skinned than he was. Imagine the reaction of the people back in St. Bonaventure. Yes, seriously. Gus learned Latin for class and Italian for everything else. He learned to play the accordion and made lots of friends. He was very well liked and came to be known as Gus from the U.S. or, I don't know, Gus from the Us. (laughs) Okay. Well, he didn't become a world-class scholar, but he did well enough in his classes. He also continued to demonstrate his passion for mission work, learning everything he could about the various regions and cultures of Africa, including learning some regional dialects, since, again, that's where he figured he'd be sent upon ordination. After his diaconal ordination on November 8th, 1885, he wrote, The day I was ordained a deacon, I felt so strong that I thought no hardship would ever be too great for me to accept. I was ready for anything. In fact, I was very sure I could move mountains in Africa. Priestly ordination came on April 24, 1886, which was Holy Saturday. He was ordained in the Archbasilica of St. John Lateran, the mother church of all Christendom. The next day, Easter Sunday, he offered his first Mass, a low Mass in St. Peter's Basilica. His server at that Mass was Cardinal Simeone, the cardinal who had intervened six years earlier to admit him to the seminary. Now he was ready to be a missionary. But as we said, Africa was not to be his destination. The night before his priestly ordination, Cardinal Simeone had upended his world by telling him he would be sent back to the United States. In a rare move, the cardinal had overruled the committee that generally made such decisions. The cardinal reasoned, America has been called the most enlightened nation in the world. We shall see if it deserves that honor. If the United States has never before seen a black priest, it must see one now. So, you know, no pressure. (laughs) Seriously. Father Gus was shocked and not just a little disappointed. He was all amped up to go to Africa. And here he was being sent back to the place of his torment. But he went back to America and his hometown of Quincy. He arrived in New York on July 6 and offered his first mass in the U.S. at St. Benedict the Moor Parish in New York City. His arrival back in Quincy was a public holiday. A brass band played Holy God, We Praise Thy Name. Father McGurr had organized a big turnout and celebration. His first mass in Quincy was a solemn high mass at St. Boniface. St. Boniface was a larger church than his home parish of St. Lawrence, which had been renamed St. Peter, and St. Boniface had been instrumental in establishing the St. Joseph School. 
In fact, by this point, St. Joseph wasn't just a school. It was also a parish, especially for the black population. The church building had been massively restored by donated labor. And up to this point, priests of both St. Boniface and St. Peter offered the mass and other sacraments there on a regular schedule. But now they didn't need to split their time. On July 25th, Father Gus was made pastor of St. Joseph Parish in Quincy. He was a beloved pastor. Both blacks and whites attended the daily and Sunday masses, as well as other sacraments. He organized many catechetical events and parish organizations. He was written of favorably by the local paper, which even noted his excellent singing voice. But opposition, of course, still existed. First, the non-Catholic religious leaders didn't like the success he had with the black members of their denominations. There was anti-Catholic activism and agitation. And then the worst happened. St. Boniface got a new pastor, and he was a troubled man. Father Michael Weiss became pastor in November of 1887. He was also the head of the deanery within the diocese. He didn't like that many white parishioners of St. Boniface were going to St. Joseph and donating to its support, especially since St. Boniface had a sizable debt of its own. He ordered Father Gus to tell the white parishioners to stop coming to St. Joseph. Father Gus resisted this pressure, but the damage was done. Many of the white parishioners stopped attending, and since they were the ones with the money, Father Gus was forced to go on the speaking circuit to raise money for his parish. And it's lucky for us that he did go on the speaking tour because some of his marvelous speeches still exist. At the invitation of the archbishops of Baltimore and New York, he spoke in both those cities, among many others. In one of those still existing speeches, he says, the Catholic Church deplores a double slavery, that of the mind and that of the body. She endeavors to free us from both. I was a poor slave boy, but the priests of the church did not disdain me. It was through the influence of one of them that I became what I am tonight. I must now give praise to that son of the Emerald Isle, Father Peter McGurr, who promised me that I would be educated and who kept his word. It was the priests of the church who taught me to pray and to forgive my persecutors. In this church, we do not have to fight for our right because we are black. She had colored saints. The church is broad and liberal. She is the church for our people. But the situation in Quincy worsened. Father Weiss prevailed upon the bishop to order Father Gus to stop luring whites away from other parishes. The thing was, all he was doing was being a good priest. He wasn't making a special effort to lure anyone. People wanted a good priest to minister to them. He was that, and the establishment above him couldn't handle it. This sad reality forced Father Gus to request that the propaganda fide transfer him. In correspondence, his local bishop and Archbishop Fian of Chicago agreed that he could transfer there and he would receive a warm welcome. It was arranged and Father Tolton became a priest of Chicago in December of 1889. Many black Catholics of Quincy, including his beloved mother and sister, would eventually leave Quincy with him to find a new life among less prejudiced people in Chicago. In Chicago, he was made pastor for all black Catholics in the city and set out to establish the parish of St. Monica for his flock. Money to build it included a number of donations from Catherine Drexel, the heiress-turned-nun who used her vast inheritance to build parishes and schools for blacks and other minorities all over the country. We'll definitely do her story at some point. But where he came to know about Catherine Drexel also stands out. 
It was in 1889 when he was attending the first ever Catholic Colored Conference, the precursor to today's National Black Catholic Congress. This event was, of course, the brainchild of the great Daniel Rudd, the black Catholic journalist and activist whose story we told in episode 33. There's a bit of a paradox about his time in Chicago versus in Quincy. In Quincy, he had a church building, a comfortable rectory, a flock that was nearby, and not a lot of trouble, frankly. But he was miserable for the persecution of his church leadership. In Chicago, he had to labor to raise funds to build a church in spite of what Catherine Drexel gave him. His flock was spread out and in greater poverty, and he lived in a tiny, poorly furnished apartment. But he had the support of his bishop, and he was unencumbered in being a good priest. His people loved him. And so, his untimely death was met with great sadness. It was the incredibly hot summer of 1897. He had been pouring himself out for his flock. On July 9th, he collapsed in the 105-degree heat of midday. Pedestrians and a police officer rushed to his side, and he was taken to a hospital, but it was too late. His vital signs continued to worsen. His mother and sister arrived, along with the hospital chaplain, and they, along with some of the sisters who had labored with him, were at his side when he breathed his last late that night. Father Gus's body lay in state before his funeral mass, which was attended by more than 100 priests and such a large crowd that the overflow had to stand in the street. After the funeral, his body was returned by train to Quincy, where another solemn high requiem mass, attended by 12 Quincy priests, was offered at his home parish of St. Peter. Of this mass and funeral procession, the Quincy Journal wrote, There was seldom such a large funeral. The cortege was four blocks long, plus streetcars, which took people as far as Dolden Field. From there, they walked to the cemetery. In 2010, Francis Cardinal George, Archbishop of Chicago, opened the cause for canonization of Father Tolton. And on June 12, 2019, Pope Francis declared Father Tolton venerable after declaring solemnly what those who knew him personally already knew, that he lived a life of heroic virtue. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, Please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about Father Augustus Tolton, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, like the home of Daniel Rudd that we visited on our Kentucky pilgrimage, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter for the latest information and updates. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH 1513. I'm Noelle Hester Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. 
Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest.